Hello, I'm Brandon Mercer. And I'm Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, May 5th, 2016, and this is episode 25 of Garbage. All right, so we have a couple things lined up to talk about tonight. You said um, you were gonna we're gonna have some dialogue about some stuff, and then once we do that, um, I want to do some follow up to the um, database inserts that I was working on last week, and talk about a couple bugs that I found and how to overcome them and all that kind of stuff. And then we have a bunch of um, people who e- emailed us, giving us feedback, and some people had questions, so we'll talk about that after we wrap up our stuff. Cool. I guess the theme or whatever that I wanted to uh, just talk about with you is around constraints. Okay. And uh, I started thinking about this because I was listening to the last episode of BSD Talk where Will was talking about um, Gopher, Mm -hmm. the old Gopher protocol. Yep. And I was thinking like how simple that protocol is and how simple like the interface is, but so many people used it for such a long time and how complicated everything is now on the web and how complicated like web browsers have to be and um, JavaScript and CSS and all the stuff you need to to make a website and all that. Mm -hmm. And I guess it just got me thinking about how maybe it's just the OpenBSD community or, or I don't know, but um, we sort of, we like things that are simple and maybe don't have as many features as something else. Mm -hmm. And that, by kind of constraining yourself as far as the features that you have, it forces you to do things a certain way and that yeah. that is a good thing or it can be a good thing, I guess. Remember um, ANSI art in DOS? Mm-hmm. Like you'd dial up to a VBS and you'd get like a sweet welcome screen that was all like awesome ANSI art. Like that came about based on a constraint. Like you couldn't draw graphics through that interface well you could later with like rip trim and stuff but um so like you know you only have those few characters in the like 437 code page that you can use uh and you only have 16 colors but people were able to like use all those things and draw really amazing art right Mm -hmm. and so that was really cool but yet like now we have you know you can draw with any color you want and you can make your canvas as big as you want and you can use all kinds of tools and stuff but people still like looking at that old ANSI art even though like you can draw something that looks like has way better definition and everything now right and I don't know I I've just been thinking about it for a while and I guess it kind of goes along with like programming yes where if you have like a really basic uh programming language you're kind of uh, incentivized to be creative about um, what you can do with it. Yep. Whereas if you have a language where every library that you could possibly ever want is provided for you, and all you have to do is basically plug them together, that it seems less, I don't know, less fulfilling as a programmer to use those kinds of things. And and harder to maintain in the long term, right? Because there's so many more different pieces that are being used... In, and when you do that, you have different uh, interactions between those different layers. Um, if I can take a second, my engineering background is like resonating with this wildly. If you look at um, certain car manufacturers, just as a generalization, um, somebody might pick one or two engines that they base all of their products around. And so because they only have one or two engines, 
Maybe they have one or two different transmissions that you can bolt up to that car. And, um, you know, the, the size of the car changes and the features of the car change a little bit. But if you look at the amount of engineering that goes into something that's really complex like an engine, and then you look at all the things that are around that particular engine that have to support it, you know, fuel systems and electronics and ECUs and, um, you know, cooling and all that kind of stuff. Every time you add another permutation, you increase the complexity of the supporting systems exponentially. And I think the same thing is that's exactly what you're driving at with software. Um, as soon as you have, um, if, if you deliberately limit your amount of features, you keep the complexity down because you keep the permutations or interactions to a minimum. And then later on, when you go to refactor something or change something or the library needs to be updated, you have less um, that needs to be updated and less things to maintain. And conversely, when you have many, many different uh, things, 30 or 40 different libraries that do similar things but are a little bit different, and then you need to refactor that later on down the road, the impact is much greater. And I think that that's what you're saying. Just uh, I'm applying a general engineering principle to software engineering and uh, trying to draw the line between the two. Yeah, I mean... Even going back to your uh, car example, um, I didn't think about this before, but since you were talking about cars, it made me think of um, when I had my Lotus. Like I liked that car because it was very simple. It mm-hmm. was very lightweight. Um, it had a very basic motor, didn't make a ton of horsepower, and it didn't have any, like there was no uh, frills in it. Like it had no power steering. Um, the older ones had no traction control. Um, very uh, non-invasive ABS. And so even though the car didn't have a lot of power, um, it was extremely fun to drive. And as a driver, I felt like a lot more, I don't know, sense of pride if I could drive that car fast or Mm -hmm. or as fast as somebody else with maybe a more modern car with all the, um, with maybe twice as much horsepower, right? Because they're, and maybe their car is like all wheel drive or something like that. Whereas mine is just rear wheel drive. And so being able to operate that, uh, machine as fast as I can, it's a lot more, um, like that was the complaint with like the Nissan GTR is that it was basically like a video game, uh, like driving a thing, like the car drove itself basically. And there was no way that you could like spin out or go out of control or, you know, um, it didn't have oversteer and didn't have understeer. It was very neutral and it, it kind of did everything for you. But everybody that reviewed it said it was like extremely boring because you just, you couldn't do anything with it. You couldn't have much fun with it. Right. And I feel like that with computers sometimes where it's like, like I want to use an old computer just because I know that it has those constraints mm-hmm. as far as disk space or processing power or RAM or whatever, or even like maybe the display size or something, just because I feel like if I'm able to do something with that old computer that maybe is much easier to do on my modern computer, it's still more satisfying to do it on the old computer just because it was harder. There's, there's a lot to take away from that lesson, you know, like, um, running a firewall on an underpowered box, Mm -hmm. um, forces you to see, well, where's this bound? Is it bound by hardware? And a lot of times it's not, a lot of times it's software. Oh, kernel locking or, oh, this is, you know, interrupt storm or, oh, this is, you know, whatever. 
Um, when you run that software on a slower box, not only is it a little bit uh, is that constraint there, but that constraint helps you identify the weak links, and maybe you can fix some of them, and maybe you can't. But um, it's it's a it's a technique that I think um, we should use more in software development because we just keep scaling up more and more and more and more servers. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like we were talking about last week where I was, you know, completely pegging the CPU on two virtual machines for an hour to do a process. And then I rewrote it. Um, and now it, you know, uses like 40 to 60% of the CPU for a few seconds rather than an hour on a single machine. Well, if I would have started there, if I would have started with an underpowered machine, if I would have constrained myself to, you know, certain CPU requirements, certain memory requirements, a certain amount of disk I.O., the program would have been better from the beginning. So in addition to being kind of satisfying that you can accomplish the same amount of work, it actually causes you to evaluate what you're doing and understand how you're attacking and tackling the problem. But anyway, and then it, it makes you uh, get creative. And I think that um, right now in this day and age, we need software developers to start to be more creative. So you and I find it satisfying, but other people need it as a tool. And I think, you know, you and I need it as a tool as well. But Right. Because, um, I mean, maybe I was also thinking about it like uh, Firefox on OpenBSD used to be very slow. I mean, it's mm-hmm. still kind of slow, but it's a lot slower on OpenBSD than maybe it is on other platforms. And so maybe that has uh, inadvertently caused me to create when I am creating a website to create it as simple as I can, because even, you know, a moderate amount of like animation and like goofy crap slows down my web browser way more than it would anybody else's. Mm -hmm. So I make my website simple, but then, uh, in the process of doing that, um, it's, you know, simple for everybody else and it works on a mobile device and, and any other underpowered, uh, machine, like back when we had netbooks and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the, if there's no constraints on the designer or the developer now, they can use whatever they want and they don't pay any attention to the CPU time that they're using, the bandwidth of all the JavaScript that they're downloading or maybe optimizing their images for a smaller screen or something like that. Yeah. Um, and like uh, a good example is that uh, I saw this um, Chrome plugin going around the internet recently and it rewrites all your Twitter uh, links. If you click on a Twitter URL, it redirects you to their mobile version on the on your desktop, because the mobile.twitter.com interface is much simpler because it's obviously made for mobile phones and stuff. Yeah. But it's like it's it has everything that you need in in a Twitter client, and the desktop like web ver- web version of the site is so slow and uh, you know burdened by all these um, this terrible javascript that seems so buggy that people just end up going to the mobile site even on their their desktop computer that's completely capable of handling all that stuff because it's a much easier interface yeah don't let me get rabbit trailed here but i want to <laughs> complain about something um i i think looking at a website now they do like analytics by putting javascript on on the page that your browser goes out and does work to help them keep track and statistics of their website. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, why should my browser be doing more work so that you can keep better track of what your users are doing? Mm -hmm. Like, 
I mean, it's one thing if you want to kind of keep track. Oh, they use this client. They were on this page for this period of time. But then now you're going to make me download some stupid JavaScript library or make my browser do other calls to other things so you can keep track. That's dumb. Don't do that. Yeah. All right, I'm done. I mean, back in the day, I mean, when we did that stuff, we just used Webalizer and ran it on our weblogs on the server side and yeah. spit out all those analytics. But because so many people are so far removed from how their website operates now, they do it all client-side and let Google take care of it. Yeah, and then Google gets your data, and your clients get burdened with extra work. Yeah. And, and you know, you get a fancy little dashboard that you could have had in Webalizer in, like, five seconds anyway. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, and then, like, today I, I saw a, uh, a URL about teaching kids um, programming with QBasic. Mm-hmm. And it was like an article from a guy that was doing this um, to teach his kid QBasic, and he was doing it on a you know a modern new computer, but the kid was still running like the DOS version of the QBasic editor uh, in a you know full screen DOS window or something. And I thought like like think about that experience for a kid. Like you can't do anything else on the screen except type words. You know like you you know hit F five I think to run your program. And then it mm-hmm. runs and you can see what it's doing and interact with it and then go back to your code. Whereas now, like if, and then I think, and I don't know where, what site it was, probably Hacker News or something. The comments for this uh, link, people were saying that they would rather teach their kid JavaScript or something because there's no point in teaching them QBasic. And right. I'm thinking like, if you have to teach a kid JavaScript, imagine like all the things that that kid has to know just to, before he even gets to the point of like writing some code. Mm-hmm. Like you have to learn the DOM and you have to learn like how, I mean, how do you even draw a line in JavaScript? Like you have to make a canvas and then like do all that stuff. That's ridiculous. Right. Um, whereas, you know, back in the day with QBasic, like you can open up the, what was it? That monkey dot pass or whatever, the um, monkey game where you throw the bananas. <laughs> and so you can open it up, you see all the code, you can change like one little variable and then run it and see how it affects it. And like, it's like, that's how kids can learn or how anybody can learn actually. Um, but it seems like trying to teach kids how to program or how computers work with something modern and extremely cumbersome like JavaScript or, um, I don't know, some sort of other Microsoft uh, language where you have to load up an entire IDE and stuff like that just seems kind of ridiculous. Yeah, the the teaching side of, of writing code, I think, is a lost art even. Um I don't, I don't understand, um, because I've been doing it so long, I don't understand what people's perceptions are when they say, like, I want to learn to code. I don't even know what that means. But when you introduce someone to something new, they need to have a certain amount of fundamentals. And so, like, if someone came to me and they said, I want to learn how to use AutoCAD, I don't even know if that's a thing anymore. But if somebody said, I want to learn how to do AutoCAD, I'd first start with them on fundamental uh, things like, this is how you need to represent your drawing. You have these types of views, all that kind of stuff. I'd start them off with pencil and paper. It'd be very basic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sketch a box. Sketch the front, set, sketch the side, sketch the top, and sketch an isometric view. And then teach them the basic principles because they need to know all that stuff before they go and actually try and create something in AutoCAD. Now, in AutoCAD, it takes 10 seconds. But if I say draw a cube in AutoCAD and they don't know how to translate that into something that's usable. I mean, there's a there's an image on the screen, but it's not usable. You can't make a part from that. You can't anything from that. 
So I think software is kind of the same way. You need to understand a lot of fundamentals before you can get into actually writing code. And even, even before the language itself, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you need to understand long before that. And, you know, like my, my son, he gets in front of a tablet and he can understand the interface and he can understand how things are supposed to work. But if you were to ask him how to create one of those games, I mean, there is so much that he would need to understand before we even got to, you know, writing a Hello World application. There's just mm-hmm. so much more um, that needs to be grasped before that starts. And I don't think that maybe um, enough people have been doing that, perhaps. I don't know. I've been removed from education for a long time, but that's what my impression is. Um, when I hear people come out of school and they know how to write .NET, I mean, they're taught how to use a tool but they have no appreciation for what's happening behind the scenes. Yeah. I initially got into computers when I was a kid learning uh logo on Apple IIe computers in our, mm-hmm. uh, I guess it was middle school or grade school. I don't know. Um, but it's like that, you know, you teach kids the basic fundamentals of like, here's how you program this little triangle to draw what you want. And you have to think about, all that stuff, but it, the interface and the way that you did that was so simple that there wasn't, there was like no overhead basically of how to do that. Um, but I guess just like going back to the whole like constraints, uh, in terms of, um, I guess art, I feel like a lot of times I want to make something, but it's so easy to make that now that like, there's no, there's no reward from it. Yeah. Like if I could make that on a much slower computer, the running, you know, old software that didn't have all this stuff that I could just drag and drop and throw it all in there. And I had to do all this stuff and and think about it all myself and get it to run within the constraints of the memory available and, and all that, that it would be so much more uh, rewarding and satisfying. And somebody else might see that and be inspired to do something. But it's like now if you try to do that, you know, you get 20 people that are like, oh, yeah, I've seen that before. Or like, oh, yeah, I could do that so easy with this program on my iPad. Let me just show you. Um, right. So then I just, I don't know, I feel like I get um, discouraged from trying these things because uh, there isn't really any point anymore. It's kind of like the, the BBS with lobsters. Like, it took me so much work to make that old interface work on a web browser. Mm-hmm. But ironically, if I just made it like an old... Um, you know, command line console application, or even one that, that worked over Telnet, it would have been like so much easier, but the hard work was like trying to make that whole old interface in a web browser. Right. But I guess that's the opposite of what I'm trying to do is I don't want to like reinvent all this old stuff on a new computer. I want to make something new on an old computer. Yeah. Um, so you were you were talking about something and it reminded me. I think one of these things with constraints is discipline. Um, if you listen to Steve Wozniak talk about uh, his approach to designing hardware, mm-hmm. he he thought it was fun um, to try and do more work with less transistors, and it was like a game to him. It was it was like a personal um, challenge or you know, something he, he like aspired to do. And I think, um, if you look at the way people approach software nowadays, um, some people are given requirements. Some people's are, are given like storylines and here's what we need to do. But most of us aren't. But I would say almost never on that radar 
Are there people talking about this needs to go this fast or this needs to use, um, uh, this can only have, you know, 400 clock cycles to do that. Or you're constrained to, you know, 16 megs of RAM and the binary can only be this. Um, that, I would argue, almost never happens. Maybe in the embedded market, people are, you know, a little bit more cognizant of that. But uh, when you sit down to build any kind of application that a company is going to use that never comes into play, mm-hmm. and so they build the application with no consideration for it, no thought about it, and then they run it, and they say, well, how is this going to scale? So they kind of go about it in a backwards fashion, right? They're like, I solved the problem, now how much hardware is it going to take to run it? Rather than saying, like, we need to be able to serve this many requests, and this is the hardware we have, so here's your constraints. So anyway, I don't think there's any emphasis placed to that on people, and when I hear about really good engineers like Steve Wozniak and the emphasis that he put on it personally, that's where you see those types of benefits. And for me, I, I don't go to that extent, but I put metrics around my stuff because I, I don't want to be doing... So t- so this week, I was um, I created this uh, transport in Go, and I was reading this thing, and I was creating a new HTTP client per request into the server, and Go was like, no... Uh, the doc said, use the same HTTP request. It's safe for Go routines. Uh, no big deal. And so I set it up to do that. And I thought, you know, like, okay, it'll get reused um, however many times. And I dialed into this server, and I thought it was going to be pipelining stuff. But it's still doing, or maybe I have this backwards. Yeah, originally I saw, I was like, man, I, I'm, I just made 2,500 DNS queries because I'm creating a new client every time. And so I implemented it the right way, and it went down to like four or five DNS queries to do the same amount of work. Mm-hmm. And so I just wasn't being aware. I wasn't paying attention. So anyway, um, I do like to add metrics to my work. How long does it take to do this particular thing? Um, am I being efficient with it? Am I creating variables inside loops instead of creating them once and reusing them? Um, or like a byte array or something like that. And I try and be aware of that. But I think people like Steve Wozniak took it to a completely different level. I mean, they were almost to the point of, you know, a passion. Uh, I won't call it an obsession, but they were so passionate about what they did that they put themselves under constraints um, and it made better uh, products and results because of it. And I think that that's cool. Yeah. Well, when you don't, like now with the code that you're writing, if you didn't have the constraints in the, like if you didn't impose those constraints on yourself, there's really no point in you doing that. Like you could have made all those DNS queries if you had enough. I mean, it sounds like your network had enough bandwidth to handle it. Mm-hmm. So nobody would have complained. You could have used, you know, as much RAM as you want because your machine, you know, has abundant uh, gigabytes of RAM probably. So it's like you have to impose those constraints on yourself and how many people are going to do that. And, and once you do that and you impose those constraints and you cut down all those DNS queries and stuff, aside from running maybe a, a marginal amount, uh, quicker, like who's going to see that and appreciate it other than you? Yeah, exactly. Which is sad because I don't know. I mean, th- there's no real like external reward for doing that. You're not going to get, you know, um, a raise because you made it <laughs> less used, fewer DNS queries. Um, yeah. I don't know. I guess, I guess the major constraint nowadays is just money, right? Like, right. That's what hardware is built that's the only constraint with hardware nowadays is like how cheap can we make this 
Yeah. It, it still goes back to discipline or, you know, self-governance, I guess. But yeah, I, I completely agree. All right. Well, I guess that's all I had for talking about constraints. It's just yeah. something that's been on my mind lately because I haven't felt very motivated to do things. And then when I do get motivation, I feel like, well, that's so easy to make. That's not really fun or anything. So then yeah. I'm like on eBay late at night on the, the uh, vintage computing forum or category looking for right. old computers because I want to buy one and then just, you know, do all my stuff through that. Yeah, I know it's a shame. It seems like things like Spark 64, you know, they just had such brilliant technology in the hardware and they were an elegant solution. And, um, I mean, they did things correctly, but what ultimately won was cheap junk that you could run a lot of crap on really fast. <laughs> yeah. And so you, you put the complexity back in the hands of the engineer and you gave the manageability or like the scalability and manageability back into some engineer's hands didn't give him an elegant solution. He didn't give him the correct solution, but that's okay. It's cheap and it's fast. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I feel your pain on that one. So, uh, did you want to talk about your Go thing? Yeah, so to follow up on something I was talking about last week, um, it actually made um, kind of an interesting uh, bit of debugging. Um, I was talking about passing in work. I had... Um, what I basically did is I iterated over this file, a single pass to gather all the information. I got in another loop to iterate over the data that I'd gathered and send it off to another service as fast as I possibly could using Go routines. And then I um, took those results and put them back into the file. And that might sound a little bit inefficient, um, but it actually turns out to work really, really well. Uh, the passes over the file are microseconds. They're very, very fast. So it's almost no cost. And then the benefit of being able to make the calls concurrently uh, really, really allows the application to scale nicely. Um, but what I didn't do is uh, when I created this uh, Go routine, I wasn't passing in the parameters from the particular iteration of my loop so that they would be exposed to the Go routine properly. That was my first mistake. So I defined something like um, for, you know, the key in the range of this list of things, um, call go function, and then I put the code that I already had inside that function, and then I would call that function, and it would fire off a go routine, and what would happen is the particular uh, item that I was on would be in scope for, you know, 10, 20, 100, or 300 go routines at the same time, and obviously that doesn't work, um, so you have to tell the Go routine, yes, you need to take this particular data structure, then pass that particular data structure in while you're calling it. And I know it sounds trivial, but it was probably worth mentioning because um, I it was not the first time that I've built one of these and I forgot again. And uh, I know that lots of people on the internet talk about doing this, so I'm not the only one who made this mistake. That was the first thing that happened. And then... Um, the other thing that happened, so with Go routines, one of the things that um, is really important is the synchronization of the work. So if you have a bunch of Go routines executing, you need something to manage the results and the um, return of those particular Go routines. And in this particular pattern, 
it's really easy. You get in a loop and you need to make sure that all the routines that you fired off in this loop come back. And so I implemented something called a weight group. Um, basically, you just define a weight group. It's a data structure. You get in your go routine or you get in your loop. You add things to the weight group so it knows how many items have been fired off. Um, defer is a good thing to use. Yes, thank you, Adam. That was a good call on there. There's a little bit of overhead with defer, but uh, not so much that um, uh, it, it really makes sense to use something else. Um, the error handling gets cumbersome if you don't use defer. Anyway, it just takes the item back out of the weight group or the count back out of the weight group. And then your loop finishes, and outside of your loop, you tell the weight group to uh, wait and that will basically block until all the items that were in the weight group are gone. So back down to zero. So those are the two things that I ran into this week uh, doing that work. And they lead to very interesting results. <laughs> um, but anyway, it was it was a really good little learning experience. And I wound up um, being able to show some people how that worked in that particular synchronization pattern. And... Um, yeah, it was, it was a good exercise. I'm not used to having, I guess, we'll, it's not really threaded support, but multiple pieces of work happening like that mm -hmm. expressed so easily in code. Normally, there's a whole bunch more uh, headache around. Like, we did Java and threads, or we did threads in Java. And I remember spending so much time, my friend's like, or my coworker is like, how many threads do you want to use? And I was like, a hundred. He's like, no, 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 like three. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. And then I started writing threads and I was like, now I see why we stuck with three. It's such a nightmare right. to manage these particular things. And with Go routines, um, there might be a hundred thousand Go routines on a single operating system thread. They don't have the same memory requirements. Um, and there's some overhead with them, but generally speaking, they're adequate for doing stuff like this and they improve the performance of the application significantly. So, all right. Um, I guess I could do a small gadget review. What do you have this week? Uh, so I got this thing called the side click. I, mm. uh, backed it on Kickstarter like a year ago and I finally got it. Um, the other day. Uh, -huh. uh, so what it is, is it's basically a small universal remote that, clips onto the side of your existing remote for like an Apple TV or an Amazon fire thing. Mm -hmm. And I think they have some models for other boxes. Um, and it's basically to solve the problem of you need two remotes for a lot of these things. So you need to control your TV and the external box. Mm -hmm. And so I have like a universal remote downstairs, which is the Logitech, um, harmony thing. I don't remember the model name, um, but you can like program everything through your phone and it syncs with like the little base station in your, uh, that you have plugged into your wall and that points at your TV and your stereo and all the other stuff you need to control and you can map custom buttons to the remote and everything. And it's, it's very nice, but it's expensive. And so to duplicate that on a, uh, on the TV we have upstairs, it seemed like it would be a lot of money. So the side click thing. I think when I backed it, it was like 20 bucks for the little remote or the little yeah. universal remote. And the problem that it's basically solving is that nowadays uh, you can't really replace the these remotes with a universal remote like I have for my stuff downstairs because like on the Amazon Fire, there's a, um, 
a search button on it that okay. actually can record your voice through the remote. And then that's how you can like, um, control the, the stuff through voice or like search for stuff. And like on the, um, Apple TV, the, the current generation one, mm-hmm. um, it has like a swipe pad on it. So it works kind of like a trackpad. Nice. So if you want to replace that with, uh, or you want like a universal remote to, to do that, you can only do like left and right. And it's, um, the way that it has to repeat that command is very slow and anyway so it's like it's difficult to actually get rid of the the custom remote for these little things that are coming out mm-hmm. so what the side click does is basically just replace the other part which is it replaces your tv remote with just a a one column of buttons that you would clip on to your like on, in my case it's the amazon fire uh remote and then you program those to your tv's remote so you can do like power and volume and and basic stuff like that but you don't need two remotes in that case yeah so it's kind of nice um the only issue that i ran into was i found out that um the remote that works on the tv up in our bedroom was actually talking to the television over bluetooth it wasn't (laughs) like an ir remote right which was very weird so the way that you program the side click is that you, you just put it in front of your remote and then you push buttons on the remote and then the side click learns for each button, like what gotcha. commands it sent. Right. Well, obviously on a remote that is using Bluetooth, it didn't see any commands and there's no other way to program the remote, the side click. So I'm like, well, what do I do now? So I got my Logitech or the Harmony stuff from downstairs. And the way that you add devices to the Harmony is it has a massive database inside of the app or whatever that it knows every every tv and every stereo and every whatever so i did that i programmed the harmony to the specific model number of the tv and it knew how to control it over ir because it had all the commands already built into it so then once that was programmed i just had to stick the side click in front of the harmony remote and let it learn the ir commands for everything Mm -hmm. and then i could put the harmony stuff back downstairs and then the side click um, could control the TV over IR. So yeah, it's a uh, kind of a neat little device. Um, you know, you don't have to deal with two remotes and when all you need on the TV is to power it on and off and change the volume and, um, your TV doesn't support, uh, CEC so that you can control like the Apple TV can control most TVs mm-hmm. through the Apple remote or like through the Apple TV itself to tell it to like adjust the volume and when you'd hit the volume button on the Apple TV remote, but for whatever reason, my TV upstairs um, doesn't work that way with the Amazon Fire thing. So I don't know if this is only for older TVs or if all the cool kids um, have fancy TVs that none of this is required anymore. But anyway, it's uh, it's out of Kickstarter now, and you can just buy it directly from their website, I think. So yeah, nice. it's kind of neat. If you are in the same situation, go take a look at it, I guess. I think we have a, a similar type situation where our like Blu-ray player has a little keypad at the bottom, so you don't need to pull out your TV remote. It's like mm-hmm. power and channel and volume and stuff. Yeah. But the problem is, is that you have to like every time the TV gets unplugged or you change the batteries in the remote or whatever it happens to be, you have to go through this painfully arduous process of setting up the bluetooth remote to do the tv or be able to control the tv in the same way Hmm. and so you know you want to just get the bluetooth remote or the blu-ray remote turn on the tv turn on the blu-ray and then be done with it 
but uh, it has other problems from the uh, be- benefits, I guess, that it brings. Um, yep, so I guess that's all I had to say about that. Cool. Um, I guess we can go on to user f- or listener feedback now. Yeah, our listeners. So you guys are fantastic. Um, we we ask, I think, every episode for you guys to let us know that you're listening. And um, you write in and you tell us stories and uh, your thoughts on the BSDs, which is really, really uh, gratifying. Um, we had several this week that were uh, pretty cool, worth mentioning. The one guy that uh, took time to write in, Ron Georgia, um, he's talking about basically the different BSD cultures, and we've touched on this quite a bit. And, uh, you know, he comments that um, people really, really get passionate about the things that they use. And um, it almost becomes like, um, you know, a a religious nature or um, an occult-like following or whatever. So anyway, um, people do that, and we have noticed that. Um, uh, And he makes kind of like a, a comparison to... Um, the leaders of particular projects getting um, the leader's behavior projected onto the rest of the community base. You know, Linus has a certain personality, mm-hmm. and so everybody starts to assume that, um, uh, you know, people who use Linux adopt and adhere to the same mentalities and personalities and um, thoughts on certain things that Linus does. And that may be true uh, of certain people, and Theo, too, of OpenBSD. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, everybody kind of, you know, assumes that the community is supposed to behave a certain way because the the leader of the project behaves a certain way. And um, sometimes they do and it's annoying and sometimes they don't and that's annoying. Um, But he kind of, uh, Ron went on to talk about something that he sent into the mailing list. And I think this is a good lesson. I think this is important. He basically said that... um, he sent in a question to the mailing list, and um, he got kind of a snarky reply back. And, okay, you know, that kind of... Normally what happens is you get a snarky reply black, back, and you just think, man, why why did I do this? I just spent time to email this in, and now I'm all bent out of shape. But what, what he did was pretty cool. He went back and he read his original email, and he's like, you know what? That's totally right. I wasn't even paying attention. I wasn't even in the right area. The guy who emailed me back was right. Lesson learned. And I think, you know, you do have to have a little bit of um, not a not a tough skin, but you have to be able to go back and say, oh, geez, I really missed the mark when I sent out this original email. I didn't even consider these other things. Duh, I should have read the code. And I think that would eliminate a lot of um, animosity. But also, too, realize that we're in different cultures. So the United States, people are offended really easily. You know, if you tell someone they're wrong, they're like, oh my gosh, you know, they hate me and wish I was dead. But really, I mean, that's, that's just a cultural thing. You know, um, you talk to people from other countries and, you know, they tell, oh no, 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 you're wrong. This needs to happen like this. And it's not like an offensive thing. They're just like, oh geez, I got it wrong. Oh, help me understand. And, you know, they move on and go, go their merry way. So anyway, um, Ron, thanks for taking the time to uh, write in and talk about your experiences on the mailing list. And I do think that you hit the nail on the head when you talk about kind of the um, strong opinions formed about the various BSD projects and stuff and and really the posture you take with the mailing lists and, um, and that kind of stuff. So 
Um, we've talked about how people kind of get their feelings hurt, and uh, it's it's easy to see how it happens for sure. Well, let's be honest, though. Theo is often an asshole on the OpenBSD mailing lists. Oh, he's blasted some people hard. You know, like new people who, you know, I get when people email and they offer no information and it's just like, you know, people reply and they're like, you have given us nothing. Like, this is not a good bug report. You you know, you got to do all these steps if you want anybody to help you. But then you get like the people that legitimately try to to do something or they even like send a patch or something sometimes. And Theo's just like, no way, you are way off. Like, this is garbage. Like, like, that's no way to treat people on that. Yeah. a mailing list or, or in any situation. And I know Theo and I've, you know, he, he's never like that in person, which just makes me even more upset because it's like that internet tough guy thing. Like if you walked up to Theo at a conference and you said like, I have this idea, he would, you know, tell you that you're wrong or like talk to you about it, but he wouldn't be like, Oh, you're, you're an idiot. Get the hell out of here. Like, right. So I don't know. Um, but certainly like the, I guess the impression that others have or that they like, uh, I mean, I've gone to conferences, like non-BSD conferences, and it, I mentioned that I'm an open BSD developer, and people assume that I'm an asshole because that is like the general image of open BSD, which is sad. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, obviously users uh, think that way, and either they don't want to try open BSD because they're afraid of interacting with the community, or they dive in and then they like take on that personality and, you know, be like, well this is how everybody is. So I'm going to reply to this guy on the, on the mailing list and tell him he's an asshole, um, which doesn't really help anything. Yeah, it really doesn't. And I don't know what it is, but I'm less and less diplomatic about things, uh, in my work environment, um, than I used to be. And my, I guess my tolerance for certain things is just worn down. I watch people come and ask questions and come and ask questions and come and ask questions. And I just ignore it. Uh, which isn't a very diplomatic way to handle the situation. Um, I, I sometimes get a little bit short with them. You know, you, you didn't try to figure this out. You didn't do your homework. You need to go do your homework and research this. Again, it's not very polite, not very cordial, but what, what winds up happening is that these people will come back and instead of doing their work, instead of their, doing their due diligence, um, they'll make you do it. And then you become kind of like, um, uh, I don't know what it is. It, it's almost like a crutch. You know, I don't have to do my job because I'll just go ask him and he'll tell me the answer. Well, no, I'm not going to do your homework and I'm not going to give you the answer because you're being lazy. Um, so in real life, uh, I'm probably more likely, um, more likely to, to be that than I would on a mailing list. Um, maybe just because I gave, give people the benefit of the doubt. And I don't really like that about myself. Um, and so when I see people behave like that on the internet, I wish that they would extend some courtesy, but in real life, I struggle with the same thing. So I don't know what that says about me. Dude, I was, I was totally the same way when I used to work at the ISP that I worked at. Yeah. Um, like everything that you said, I was like, oh, that's totally me. I would, uh, people would come to me and be like, Hey, can you automate this one function that I have to do every day? Mm -hmm. And then I would get, you know, um, I'd get upset that they, are asking me to do this because then they would go and like talk to my boss Mm -hmm. and then he would be like, Oh yeah, that would make a lot of sense. You're the programmer. Like, you know, you'd save us a lot of money if they didn't have to do this. So then I would get assigned that task to automate this person's job. And then, so their job is much easier. My job is much harder. And then I, I don't know, I would just start like getting pissed off at all these people when they would come and ask me to do stuff. 
and then I was the same thing. I was like being rude with them and I would be, get, get short with them and be like, you know, you didn't, this isn't the right way to do it. Like this, this like it's not going to work and whatever. And, uh, and it kind of like affected my personality outside of work too. Like I was just a grumpy asshole all the time Yeah. because of how these people interact. Like I had to interact with these people at work. Um, and I don't know if it was cause I just couldn't or didn't say no to them and I needed to learn how to say no to them or how to be more cordial and like saying that, you know, that's not really good use of my time or, or whatever. Um, but it didn't really get resolved until I left there and yeah. worked for myself. So, and I, I noticed that like, it was remarkable. Like once I left there and was doing stuff on my own and I could control what I want to do and I didn't have to work or deal with coworkers and stuff, I just became like a, like so much nicer as a person. Yeah. I think that's true of myself. I remember I used to love to hang out with people. I'd go out and do stuff and, you know, want to interact with people. And now when I come home, it's just like, I don't want to see another human being because I just can't, even the most non-offensive thing that someone does, I find irritating. And I think it's just because I exhaust all that. And I had a, a friend of mine talking to me about it and they're like, you can tell someone something to the point, like you can tell something to someone that gets your point across without being a complete jerk about it. And I was like, yes, I can. And uh, I think the problem is, is that you do it so many times in a professional environment that it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. And, and so you can, you can get your point across and you can be polite about it and still, you know, draw your line in the sand. And some people are really good at that, but even those people, I see them get exhausted from doing it. And, and you know, when like they've, they've been worn down because it's like a game for everyone else. Oh, they're trying to be polite. Oh, they're trying to be coy. I can get them to crack. And so they act, you know, more obnoxious or whatever to try and get them to do that. But I don't know. I don't know what the solution is to that, but you can be cordial and you can be to the point about them and, you know, not be a complete jerk about stuff. You know, that's not how this is going to work. Yeah. Let me tell you why. And that may sound a little frank to some people, but honestly, um, there needs to be a line somewhere with stuff. But I think uh, it's it, when you have people in a culture who behave badly, the good people are not going to be able to continue to behave well because it's uh, they'll get eaten alive, or it's not um, it'll wear them down, or et cetera, et cetera. You always get worn down to the lowest common denominator, anyhow. It seems. Yeah, I mean, when I started there. Um... I, you know, I started in tech support and then I moved to being like a dedicated software developer. Mm -hmm. And then as the company grew, we eventually got, um, other software developers to join me. And so I had to take on like a lead software engineering role. And I think what really helped, uh, is towards the end before, um, I left there is one of the other partners, um, stepped up and took over the engineering department. Mm -hmm. And so I was no longer like the head of the department i could just go to or i could just go back to like being a senior software developer or whatever yeah and it having that buffer between you and the rest of the company the rest of the non-engineering company i guess yeah um really helped because he was the one that at, that went to all those meetings and then anytime somebody wanted something automated or whatever they had to go through him and then he could push back and say you know we have so many other projects we have to work on right now that's not a good use of our time or yeah, I'll, you know, we'll take it into consideration, and then he would just give it to one of the other developers, so I wouldn't have to work on it. Um, yeah. So I guess it depends on the size of your company and, and whether 
um, you have that option to, to kind of put a buffer between you and everybody else. Yeah. Thankfully that has happened to me recently. And the guy who's doing that is, uh, is really fantastic. He just uses numbers. He he doesn't get his emotion involved at all. He's like, all right, here's what we have. And when you ask for this thing, this is the effect it's going to have. And people are like, oh, geez, well, that's no good. (laughs) So I think it's really effective and I really appreciate it. Um, so anyway, we have, we've had a number of people write in thanking us for the show, uh, giving us good feedback, um, and, uh, people talking about rant ideas and all that kind of stuff. So thank you guys for writing in. If you just wrote in to say thank you, um, we appreciate that. There's a whole list of things here. Paul and Remy and Tim and a whole bunch of people have taken the time to write in, but we do have one more thing to kind of touch on tonight. Um, you, you guys were asking about, um, some t-shirts and some stickers and some other stuff. So, um, and actually that got even more emails about stickers and emails or stickers and t-shirts rolling. So do you want to talk about that real quick? Uh, yeah. So I finally found a site where you can design a t-shirt and make like your own little shop. Mm -hmm. Um, because I wanted, uh, I didn't want to have to buy all the merchandise myself and then deal with like shipping it out and then having not enough in one size and color and all that other stuff. Right. So I finally found one and they have like an online thing where you can design your own shirt and then put it in your own little marketplace or whatever. So I did all that. Um, and I don't really want to announce it yet because, um, I'm very picky about my shirts. (laughs) Like I don't like a lot of like, you know, the, the shirts we always get at hackathons, they're like the super heavyweight, um, shirt with, I don't know if it's like the Hanes shirt or whatever, but they never fit me well. And they're always like super thick and I hate wearing them. They're not like, they're not very fashionable. And at least that's the way that I am. So I, I never end up wearing them. I, I get them from the hackathon and then they end up sitting in my drawer. And that's the same for basically every t-shirt that I get from an event or something. So the, uh, this place that sells or that makes these shirts has like a wide variety of different, um, types of shirts, uh, that vary in price. So what I actually did was, um, I made them and then I got one printed and I'm waiting for it to arrive so I can make sure that it's sufficient quality. Um, and then I will, I guess, put the, or we'll announce the link to the thing in the next show, assuming I get it by then. Yeah, And then uh, anybody that wants a shirt can buy one from here. Um, it's pretty nice. They have like, um, like I just have to pick the shirt, like the material or whatever, and um, apply the design to it. And then when you go on, like anybody can go on there and, and buy it in any color or any size. Nice. So um, I made two dude shirts and one women's shirt. Uh, I don't know if we even have any women listening, but whatever. Um, we do. Okay. So there's a shirt there. Um, so yeah, I'll let you guys know once I get one and, and test it out and make sure that it's good quality. Cause, uh, 900 thread count Egyptian. Cotton. Well, it's like a lot of these places use the, uh, American apparel shirts and right. I don't particularly like those very much. Um, they're very, they're like oddly sized and, especially like their hoodies, the, the sleeves are like super long. Um, but anyway, maybe this is all just me and I should just stop complaining and just offer these up and lots of people will be happy with 
whatever shirt is there because they don't or really have... care as much about the quality of a t-shirt. Or they'll have very strong opinions about how horrible they are. Yeah, but as somebody that wears a uh, a black t-shirt every day, uh, I have my one brand of shirt that took me years to find, and so now I'm I pulled a Steve Jobs and I have an entire drawer full of the same black t-shirt. Yeah, because uh, it fits me perfectly and it's high quality, and I don't have to worry about ruining it in the dryer and all that other stuff. I don't think there's anything wrong with finding like a shirt that fits you well and that you like. Um, I've been kind of like harassed by my coworkers because I wear t-shirts one day and polos pretty much every day. And then, you know, a dress shirt every once in a while. And they, they're like, what are you so dressed up for today? And I'm like, man, I can't win. You pick on me when I wear polos, right. you pick on me when I wear t-shirts, you pick on me when I dress up. And so, uh, I just, you know, been worried about what I like and I'm going to find some really nice like wool shirts that are like super soft and comfortable and cost like $90 each and I'm going to like them and I'm going to wear them and I'm going to get like a whole dresser for full of them. It's the way to go, man. They don't have to deal with it. Yeah, exactly. I can be as pretentious as I want and I don't have to think about it. Hmm. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'll have a few of these shirts up. Like there is the American apparel one and, um, they're this company's own brand. I don't even know how, how they fit. But um, the price for them is about $30, and that nice. $5 of that goes to us. Cool. Um, so if you guys want to get them, you can uh, support us by sending us some dollars, and you get a shirt. Oh, I, so I also, aside from the quality of the shirt, I wanted to make sure that like the positioning of the logo on the front and the back are okay, because mm-hmm. um, it's hard to tell with the... Uh, you know, the little Online stock tools. images and yeah. there's no person in it. So, um, yeah. So I'll put the link in, uh, or we'll announce this stuff next week once we actually have them up and, uh, for sale. Nice. Cool. All right. I'm going to put a link in the show notes for the ingenious design of the aluminum beverage can. It's a video on YouTube that I just watched before we <laughs> recorded this show because it's so awesome. And I bet none of you knew this about, uh, aluminum cans and it has nothing to do with the show but i just thought it was neat awesome. um so i guess that's it for this episode if there's anything you'd like to hear us talk about in a future episode such as the ingenious designs of aluminum beverage cans you can reach us on twitter at garbage fm and through our website at garbage.fm brandon where can people find you yeah i'm on twitter i'm at no mercy mod with a k-n-o-w and i'm also on google plus if you care to venture through those urls Uh, I'm on the web at jcs.org and on Twitter at jcs. Now, wait a second. Did you say the ingenious design of the aluminum garbage can? Because... I said beverage can. (laughs) (laughs) You said garbage can. Did I? Which is perfect because this is garbage. No, I didn't say that, did I? Uh, I'll have to go back and, and edit it or whatever, but yeah. That's awesome.